I'm okay. I can, I, I'd be wrong. But, but I, uh, it, there is just no, and I echo what Joe said, that uh, I encourage you to find a way. I tell people all the time that there's no bad way to get to Israel. Get to Israel. On the other hand, some are better than others. And if you can find a good, solid study trip, and a study trip means, number one, well, number one, it's, you're going to work hard. There will be some restrictions. You've you got to be able to walk. We walk seven, eight miles a day and uh, never on level or easy terrain. And a uh, uh, study trip is going to have study material. So we have, you know, a uh, study trip, here's a curious reality, is not going to go shopping. Most trips, uh, you see, when you're in Israel, most anywhere, and I don't resent this, is what makes the world goes, go around, but both the bus driver and the guide get 10% of everything you spend in the souvenir shops. So they desperately want to get you into those souvenir shops. We don't make the first stop. We, we, we've got so much to cover every day that we, and we've worked it out with the bus driver, and quite frankly, uh, the travelers, because they're the one who ultimately pay, pay him handsomely, because he's not going to make anything on, on, you know, the souvenir commission. But all that to say that uh, there are some ways are better than others, but get to Israel. Now, what I'd like to do, and I just had this going just, just kind of for interest, but what I'd like to do is, uh, well, you know what? If you have any, uh, come to me. If you have any questions now or anywhere along the way, the floor is yours, okay? But uh, just to give some cohesiveness to this and maybe to try to explain why I think it's so important to go to Israel. Look, I said to you actually yesterday, and you know this, that the Bible is history. One half of your Bible is historical narrative, right? Genesis to Nehemiah is an unbroken story, a little bit of a flashback in, in, in Chronicles and then uh, and in actually Esther, uh, but, the, but, but that's, that's event revelation. Gospel, the Gospels and Acts is history. Now, m- most of that history played itself on this, out on the stage, which is Israel. You're going to understand the history better if you know the stage. You don't have to go to Israel in order to know the stage. You can study it from afar, today more so than ever before. And you know, it often, I, I make this point often, but it really is important to me. It is, it is just stunning to me. I, 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 again, because this has become such a delightful part of our lives, I, maybe that's why I, I focus on it. So, But think about this. It is absolutely stunning that Israel is available today. From 70 A.D., what happened in 70 A.D.? Temple was destroyed. The Romans took over. They tried to obliterate uh, all things uh, Jewish. From 70 A.D. until 1967. Some of us can remember 1967. From 70 A.D. to 1967, Israel was functionally, if not physically, inaccessible. Here it is wide open, just wide open. And it's secure. Israel knows security. They're very good at it. 
Uh, they spend a lot of time and effort and money and bring a lot of expertise to the effort of uncovering artifacts and sites that are relative to the Bible that we are really interested in. They don't really believe the Bible, but it's like they're thinking, you know, those folks back at Living Hope Bible, they'd really be advantaged if we spent a couple million dollars and put this on display, and it's just waiting for you to come and enjoy it. I mean, it is, it is, it is just stunning to me that, 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 that the opportunity is, is afforded to us today. But here's what I want to talk to you about. I'm going to go as quickly as I know how. But the, it's one thing to go to Israel, and amen and amen, and just see the places where various events happened. Uh, I do not like the pilgrimage approach where there is something uh, spiritually profitable and just being there and so on. You're, you're just as close to God here as you are there. But what I think is important when you're in Israel is to, is to understand the very deliberate connection between the land and the story. How God's purposes with Israel uh, are, are so tightly connected to that little tiny land. Now, you know that Israel is a tiny land. It's about 140 miles north to south if you go all the way down to a lot. And by the way, in Israel, in the old in biblical days, uh, Israel didn't go down there in the tip, you know, the point down there. Uh, but uh, at about 50 to 80 miles east to west, they have no natural resources to speak of. Well, they haven't. They have just recently discovered oil, and they have learned to desalinate water, which is really fascinating. Uh, water is no longer an issue. Uh, up until just two or three years ago, about 60% of the water that was used by human beings, well, actually by anybody, in Israel came out of the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee, there was always this panic talk about it. It's low, and you got to... They don't talk that way anymore because they're desalinating water out of the uh, Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. Well, not a lot, but they have found oil. And uh, uh, actually what they have found, as I understand, they, they think they may have oil on the Negev down in the south. But what they found about 10 years ago probably now, and it was a noble gas company, but uh, they found a huge cache of natural or, or deposit of natural gas just off of Haifa. And when they found it, they giddy, giddily, is there such a word? They, in giddy fashion, they announced that soon they would be selling oil to Saudi Arabia, that they would be totally oil independent. And by the way, it's not just oil independence. What they would like to do is sell oil to Europe and get Europe out from under the heavy hand of Russia so that Europe wasn't predisposed to side with Russia because they're so dependent on her oil. But they ran into the same kind of governance, government snafus that you and I know something about, and uh, it took them forever. And finally, Noble Gas, just trying to decide who was going to get the, you know, make the money and all this sort of stuff. I don't know much about it. I read a lot of articles about it. They have just recently re-excited uh, the effort, and they are starting. They claim that pretty soon they'll actually be refining that gas they draw out. So it, 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 it could change the dynamics. Time out. We're not even going anywhere. How can we have a time out, for heaven's sake? But 
Do you like Joel Rosenberg? Do you, do you read Joel Rosenberg? I like Rosenberg. I, I, he's, he's, he's a very helpful, stable guy. But he, he uh, I don't know how far, I don't want to get into this, but some years ago, Joel Rosenberg rather made himself famous by studying, actually it was part of his job, he was in the diplomatic corps, but he would study the world scene and he would compare it to biblically prophetic passages and just ask the question, if in fact, we don't know for sure, but if in fact the second coming is on the near horizon and the world is being shaped for the second coming, how might the two fit? Are you familiar with this? And some years ago, he predicted that they would find oil in Israel. And they have been looking at forever. And his reasoning was this, that in Ezekiel 38, when that ten-nation coalition attacks Israel, uh, they do so for its spoil. And he said, Israel has no spoil. There's absolutely nothing there to, you know, that's, that's worth anything. So he kind of speculated. And it, it's, he's not date setting. He's just kind of saying, all right, if we put two, two together, maybe we get 22. We've got to be careful, but maybe it fits. You know what I mean? So at any rate, yeah, the, I don't know exact status of it. So, yeah. All right, well, here's my point, though. I'm going to back up. Uh, there, it's, it's little appreciated, in my mind. I, I, I think it is very little appreciated how desperately important raw geography is to the purposes of God in Israel. And I'm going to walk you through just three. i got seven concepts. Don't worry. I'm only going to look at three of them. But these are concepts that I think are basic to understanding what God is doing with Israel. And I always say that this is, by the way, a lecture that I always try and give at the very beginning of the trip. Somehow contrive a way to sit the people down and walk them through this to help them see why this is all so important. But let me just say this going in, that, and uh, I just heard Joe say that you guys are about to kick off an Old Testament survey class, get there. It is, oh my goodness, uh, I, I, I don't want to, it's so important to know the Old Testament, and people are so desperately unfamiliar with the Old Testament, but I leave it alone, and it's so delightful. Oh, it's more fun than the New Testament, just in terms of the stories, oh my goodness, and the people. Okay, the New Testament is great fun too, but my point is that just for sheer flannel graph worthy fun, I'm telling you the truth, it's, it's, it's great. But, but here's my point. When you open the pages of the Old Testament, when you uh, confront or get, start to interact with that narrative, you encounter a serious culture shock. And it's both cultural and theological and you, you have to recalibrate your head to understand what God is doing. Now, we tend, and there's a whole theological system which I think mistakenly and cripplingly pretends we can do this. We tend to just, we tend to just take what is doing today and just extrapolate it in the Old Testament. It was exactly the same thing. It's not the same thing. Now, it's the same goal, and that is God is busy about glorifying himself. But uh, he's doing it in a very, very, and, and the Bible is not, is not, ambiguous about this. It couldn't be more explicit. So let me walk you through here. i got to get to it. So I'm going to give you three simple concepts. And number one is what I call the intent and importance of Israel influence. And I'm going to be very quick here. But uh, the point is simply this. Now, now think about this. This is a little Old Testament. Uh, uh, 
Abraham, can you give me a year for Abraham? About when did Abraham live? All right, that's, that's pretty close. Uh, Joe mentioned 2166. He was born in 2166. He was, born, he was called in 2091. So let's say Genesis 12 for round numbers so I can do the arithmetic is 2100. All right, you with me? So if Abraham uh, is, is, is called in 2100, uh, what's the most recent date that we can, oh no, I'm sorry, yeah, the most recent date we can assign for creation? Total young earther. You're a total short chronology, and by the way, I am, for what it's worth. I'm a rabid young earther. Usually 4,000, around 4,000. We'd say the earth is 6,000 years. All right, let's just do this. 4,000 B.C. is creation. All right. Abraham is called in 2100 B.C. That's Abraham. So that means, that's a zero, as anybody can see. So that means that, now, where in the Bible is, is, is Abraham called for the first time? Genesis 12. So that means that from 4,000, from Genesis 1 to Genesis 12 is 19, at, at no less than 1,900 years. Right? All right. When does Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, when does that happen? Malachi is 400 B.C. So that means from Genesis 12 to Malachi is 1,700 years. There is more human history in Genesis 1 to 11 than there is in Genesis 12 through the end of the Old Testament. Does that make sense to you? By any standard. Now, I say that just to make this point that you have to understand. And by the way, Genesis 1 to 11, uh, creation, fall, flood, uh, uh, Babel, is pretty much a record of rebellion against God. Wouldn't you say that's pretty much what we, we got going on there? So... The point is this, that, and, and oftentimes, Genesis 1 to 11, and I, I, I think this is an apt title, Genesis 1 through 11, again, creation, fall, flood, Babel, is often called universal dealings. And what's meant by that is simply that in those chapters, in those 1900 years, God is dealing with a race as a race. But in Genesis 12, he turns a huge corner and calls Abraham and says, I am going to cut a covenant with you like I cut with no one else. Does that make sense to you? God turns a major corner in Genesis 12. He's no longer working with the race as a race. He is, he is focusing on this one family, this one man who's going to become a family, who's going to become a clan and a tribe and a nation and so on. Now, here's my point. I think it is altogether, and this is why I spend time here, I think it is altogether too easy to fall into the notion, witlessly, you could only do this witlessly, you could not come here if you spent any time in the Bible, but many fall into the notion that in choosing Abraham, God was somehow being unfair to and neglecting the rest of the world, as if in choosing Abraham, he's just going to work with Abraham. Does that make sense to you? And the fact is that God's intent was always that Abraham would be a witness to the nations. Israel is God's grand object lesson of who he is and his covenant-keeping character. 
Now, you have that in these two verses. You know, I like to say, and I think this is a good way to break the Old Testament down, in, in Genesis 12, God calls the fa- Abraham to himself, makes a covenant, and in Genesis 12 through the end of Genesis 12 to 50, he works with the family of Abraham. At the end of Genesis, Jacob has gone down to Egypt, right? Now 400 years go by, Moses is raised up, brings them out through the Red Sea, brings them to Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai, hear this, the family of Abraham becomes the nation of Israel. That's what's going on in the Sinaitic, uh, at Mount Sinai. And specifically, Yahweh makes himself king over Israel. Now, at those two points, first of all, in Genesis 12 and verse 3, when God cuts that covenant with Abraham, personally, what does God say? You will be a blessing to all nations. I'm choosing you to make of you a blessing. Does that sound like he's neglecting the rest of the world? And then in Exodus 19, which I think is one of the most important verses in the Old Testament passages, this is at the foot of Mount Sinai where Yahweh offers them this relationship by which he would be their king and they would be his people. And he makes, I'm not going to go there, but he says, if you will obey me, I will make you, and I want you to remember these two phrases. Number one, I will make you a kingdom of priests. Remember this, Exodus 19.6. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be a kingdom which everybody gets to be a priest. We know that, only the line of Aaron. It means, what does a priest do, folks? What is a, what is a priest? He's an intermediary, right? I'm going to make you a kingdom with a priestly function. I'm going to put myself on display to the nations in grace, and I'm going to prove who I am through my dealings with you. But he goes on to say, that's number one, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. Number two, he says, I'm going to make you, you can't read that, a holy nation, a set-apart nation. So in order to, here's my point, that God is not, as a matter of fact, let me go to the next one. Uh, it's very simple. In, in, in choosing Israel and forming that very covenant, special, very unique, entirely unique. Uh, there are not degrees of uniqueness, by the way, I realize that. So that unique covenant relationship with, with Abraham, God is not neglecting the rest of the world. It is such an act of grace. Does that make sense to you? Folks, let me just stop on that for a minute. Do you like Fiddler on the Roof? If you don't, shame on you, but... Have you seen Fiddler? Do you not enjoy Fiddler? But uh, if you haven't seen Fiddler, go watch Fiddler. But, but uh, I just always think of that moment when Tevya, uh, having come home with a lame horse, you know, and out in a barn trying to get ready for Shabbat and so on, and he gets into as if I were a rich man, you know, dreaming and so on, and uh, thinks about all the things that are going on. But at one point, remember Tevya says, Oh, God, maybe you should have picked somebody else. And I'm telling you something. Do you realize what it means that Israel, and they have, they have, they have rebelled, they have been stubborn, they have re- but Israel is God's means of putting himself on display to the world. And they are putting God onto a display, uh, on display to a world who hates that God. And because they hate that God, they hate that people. It's, it's a heavy duty to be born. And, and, but they do it for our sake. So I'm going to leave it alone, that God is not rejecting the world. He forms a special relationship, 
in order that he might put himself on display to the world. Does that make sense? Honestly, work with that. All right, let me go to a second one. Now we get into geography. And I call it the principle of providential placement. How's that? Look, the way the earth is shaped is not an accident. Can we all agree on that? And now this is so big. This is so big. The fact is, I'm going to give you a little history here, a little geography. Most of you are familiar with this. But God placed Israel, this little tiny land right here, at, right at the most important international, uh, uh, the most important, the strategic spot, the most important international highway in the ancient world, which is the Fertile Crescent. I'm taking you back to high school, for heaven's sakes. But you remember the Fertile Crescent. And, that, uh, uh, and, and what's at stake is this, that as men began to deliberately craft cultures, and we're not talking about a hairy guy dragging a woman out of a cave by the hair, okay? We're talking about three men who got off of a boat and found an ecology entirely different than anything they'd ever known before, and they set out to fulfill the commission. There, They grow uh, rebellious in it very quickly, but the commission that God had given them to frame cultures that would honor him. Well, those cultures tended to, the, the two anchor points of those, that, that, those cultures were number one, Egypt, and number two, Mesopotamia. Now, in both cases, the reason is a river. In, in antiquity, obviously, I say antiquity, these people are not primitive. They are so much smarter than we are. They're doing things in terms of engineering and science and that we can't duplicate today. They have a, but at any rate, the point is that rivers are very handy. They provide water for the crops. They provide easy travel so you can have uh, interaction between villages and trade and develop middle class, all that sort of thing. So you got the Nile River, that uh, ribbon, a ribbon of life in, in, in the midst of the desert, which is Egypt. And then you got the mighty Fertile Crescent, which is these Mesopotamia, which means between the rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Now, here's the, as a matter of fact, uh, I think I have another. Here's a, a better map representing the, uh, the Fertile Crescent. Uh, I'll go back to it again. Here is Mes- Mesopotamia, and uh, of course here is Egypt. And now the point is that travel from one to the other is, and again, I want you to see this isn't accidental. God framed it this way. Travel from one to the other in any direction, in either direction, and for that matter, if you're going to go north to Europe and so on, is going to follow the crescent because you've got the the. Arabian Desert, which is a true blue, no kidding around, you're not coming across here, desert, uh, thrust up into the underbelly in these huge Caucasus Mountains. So you've got this fertile crescent where all, and if it's you and your buddy, maybe you can make your way across the, 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 the desert. But if you're going to move, watch this, an army or a caravan, you're going to follow the crescent. And there's absolutely no getting around that. Now here's the point. And I, I, I like to tell people that... Of all, whatever I can teach you about Bible geography, the single most important little tiny free-floating factoid is this. And you're not going to understand what God's doing unless you get your arms around this. It's simple, but you've got to know it. It's right here on the sheet. And that is that the little tiny land of Israel is the only truly narrow spot on the Fertile Crescent. And traffic is going to be funneled into Israel necessarily, and they're going to have to pass through it, and that's, that's the point I make. And this is why, in spite of the fact, 
And it's stunning. You do anything with history and the, uh, this part of the world, and it really is absolutely stunning the degree to which this little tiny slip of land has been the absolute focal point of human history, uh, inter, inter, international geopolitical history at every point. And it's almost in time. Not today so much, although it still is. But I mean, it still is the center point. But, but uh, throughout most of antiquity, and I'm talking up through the Middle Ages, through the British Empire, huge in the British Empire. And that is that the only truly narrow spot on the Fertile Crescent is Israel. And I'll go a step further. Israel is, is uh, in Israel, I guess that's the best map I've got right here. It's not very large, but suffice it to say that right there, there is an arrowhead-shaped uh, valley. Uh, right, you're not going to be able to see this very well. Right there, it's kind of shaped like an arrowhead, and it has a shaft. It is, by any standard, the most important valley on the face of the earth called the Jezreel Valley. Uh, historians tell us that 42 history-shaping battles have happened right there in that valley. And the reason is because, and here I'll show it to you, here is basically the international traffic. These, you have the international traffic. This is the Fertile Crescent. This is the narrow spot in the Fertile Crescent. So here comes the traffic down from the north, from Damascus. It, 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 there are two ways by which it can go north of the Sea of Galilee and make its way past Mount uh, Tabor and into the Jezreel Valley, or it can come east of the, and, and south of the Sea of Galilee, make its way up that valley, the Herod Valley, the shaft of the arrow, and, but it's going to be forced. It's going to be. You see, by the way, the reason, primarily reason, is this thing right here, the Jordan Rift. Now, I know geography makes your eyes glaze over, but stay with me for just a second here. The Jordan Rift... Is is the most one of the most I, I think one of the most stunning geological and topographical features in the face of the Earth. It is a deep, deep cleft in the Earth. It's actually called the Syro-African Rift because it starts in Syria and goes all the way down to Central Africa. It's about fourteen thousand miles. It's about one sixth of the Earth's circumference, and uh, it is it is just this gash in the face of the Earth. And it's low all the way along, but it's lowest here. In the north is the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee. What's the lowest spot in America? You know that. How deep is it? Do you know? I happen to know. Yeah, 282 feet is what I, what I read. 282 feet. The surface of the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. The Jordan River snakes its way down 60 miles as their crow fly and about 120 miles as it flows down to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level, and it is 1,200 feet deep. Now, and it's a very narrow, steep walls on this chasm, all of which is to say no army or caravan is going to go down there. You can't protect yourself down there. Uh, water is very difficult down there, even though the Jordan River is close by, but it's so deep in the rift it's hard to get to. Uh, and if you go down there, you're going to have to climb back out. So all the traffic is going to be forced. You're going down to Egypt, and ultimately they want to get to this right here, which is called the Via Maris, the way of the sea, the coastal plain. Now watch this, because this is really big, even though I... Here is the... I, I, I've circled it for you. So here is the little Jezreel Valley. Now the Jezreel Valley is formed by what a mountain that you remember right there called Mount Carmel. It's interesting 
that uh, all the mountains in, in Israel tend to be on a north-south axis, except for this one. And it just sits right across the plain. And there are only, that is, right between you, you the, the traffic is forced into the Jezreel Valley. It wants to get out here. Now, here's the rub. There are only three passes in Mount Carmel. And so if you can control those three passes, you can control the great majority of the international traffic on that highway. Does that make sense to you? And if you can control it, you can tax it. This is what made Herod so filthy rich he couldn't get rid of his money because the Pax Romana and trade is exploding, and he is given, he secures that place for Rome, and he's allowed to tax all that traffic. And uh, now he, he comes up with some other ways to generate a lot of funds. But the point is that, and, and these passes, by the way, one, the first one is called the Jocnium, and that's where traffic goes today. And this southernmost one is called the Dothan. But this middle one, which is most important, is called the Megiddo Pass. And I uh, didn't mean to do that. And uh, the, uh, it's guarded by a little city called Megiddo. And the city hits, sits on a hill. And the Aramaic word for hill is Har. So it comes to us as Har Megiddo. And there's a battle yet to be fought there at Armageddon. Does that make sense to you? So where I'm taking you is simply this, that the, the, uh, it, it's not an accident that God, that, that the world is crafted as it is. And uh, so, number one, I, I said, is, is the intent and importance of Israel's influence, that God never intended to turn his back on or to neglect the rest of the world. He chose Israel to make them the vehicle by which he would put himself on display, all right? Number two, I'm calling it the principle of providential placement. Now, think about this. You don't have to go very back, back very far in, in, in history, but what you get to a place where you couldn't get a message from here to there any faster than you could get a person from here to there, right? And in, in antiquity, people wanted to know what was going on in the world, but how are they going to hear? Well, there was, no, there was no formal system whatever, but there were, there were men who would go and they would, uh, if they knew a battle was shaping up, they would make their way there and they'd sit in the hill and they'd watch it and they'd write it out. Or if they knew that a great wedding was to take place or a great coup had happened, they'd make their way there and they'd learn all about it. If there was some new invention that the whole world was, wanted to see, they would go and they'd see it and they'd draw pictures. Then they would go across the world by caravan. That's the only way to say, safe way to travel. It wasn't safe to travel, but if you just attach yourself to a caravan and you make your you, you just pay the wagon master a little bit, and everywhere you go, and by the way, every city you come to, you're going to be dined and welcomed, and they want to hear what's going on in the world. Now, folks, those caravans are being very carefully channeled into Israel. And those, those heralds are going to hear the stories of what, you know, one of the ways in which God loves to identify himself in the Old Testament as he calls himself the living God. What's that mean? He can actually do things. He can hear the cries of his people. He can come to their rescue. He can intervene on their behalf. And folks, we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that those stories of God's intervening on, uh, on behalf of Israel were carried to the ends of the earth. Uh, I love the verse, uh, uh, 
in, in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a melancholy story. It's where the Israelites carry the ark into battle. You remember that? But it says when the Philistines saw, they're on two facing hills, and the Philistines have spies, and they realize that they have brought the ark into battle. All right? And folks, if I say that, and you're thinking of a really big boat, you need to spend more time in the Old Testament, okay? I'm telling you. This is the throne of God. This is that box, that sacred box, the Ark of the Covenant. They took it into battle. Here's what I want you to see, is when, this is 1 Samuel 4, when the uh, Philistines realized this, they said, oh, woe is us. This is the God who slew the Egyptians in the wilderness. Now, what's staggering about that is that that happened 400 years earlier. And they are still smitten with fear when they think about it. There's a verse in, in Esther, I'm not going to go there, but in Esther chapter 6, where Haman has, it's, it's, it's the worst, well, it's the second to the worst day in Haman's life. The next morning is the worst. But, but uh, you know, he had gotten up early to go ask for permission to kill Mordecai, and the king hadn't been able to sleep and had been reminded that Mordecai had rescued him and couldn't think of what to do with him or how to honor him, so he calls Haman in, and he says, of course, Haman thinks he's talking about himself, but he says, what should I do if there's a man in my kingdom I need to honor? And Haman says, get a big horse and ride him through town and say, this is the man that the king honors. He says, okay, go do that for, for Mordecai. So Haman goes home, and he's, he's bemoaning this to his family. There's been an ongoing battle between him and Mordecai. And in the course of it, he told them that Mordecai was Jewish. And his own wife said, Haman, if you are raising your hand against the Jews, you're going to lose. Uh, that's not the, the word for word, but that's what she says. You're certainly going to fall. I mean, God put himself on display in the most remarkable way in terms of protecting these people and so on. And here they are. This is the days of the Persian conquest. And yet even though the Persians are in charge and, 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 and uh, the, 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 uh, uh, Israel is just a, 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 a what do I want to say, a satrap, a, a province and so on, nonetheless they realize that the God of Israel is not to be messed with. Now I'm just saying that. So, and, and, and this is the other thing. I, I say it on the, on, the sheet, on the overhead here that I do not believe with all due respect, but I do not believe that Israel in the Old Testament had a missionary imperative. God's intent was not that they would form mission agencies and go out and reach the world with the message of Yahweh God. God's intent was that they stay home in that nation, in that land, and God so powerfully, now listen, God had made them a very simple promise, twofold promise. And that is this, I will bless your obedience and I'll curse your disobedience. So you got the choice. But either way, if you obey, God's going to prove what a gracious God he is, what a giving and protecting God. If, on the other hand, you disobey, God's going to put his holiness and his righteousness on display. It's your choice, but God is going to put himself on display. So I spend too much time. The point is that and there is this dynamic, and this is for those of you who have spent a little time you know, thinking about the theological issues. But one of the most remarkable dynamics of this whole story is that God is dealing with the nation of Israel as a nation. 
He's blessing the nation's obedience. He's cursing the nation. And, and, and it really not is, it's not a function of how many individual Israelites are genuinely twice born. That's, that's, not, that's sort of secondary. I mean, it's certainly important to the heart of God. But in terms of what he's doing with Israel, as a nation, as they obey, God will bless as they disobey, God will curse, and the rest of the world will stand amazed at this covenant-keeping God who so quickly and faithfully honors that covenant. Does that make sense to you? So I don't think he, that's what I mean, but he brought the world to Israel, brought all these caravans through here. And, uh, uh, well, I'd like to go a little further away, but let me just give you this. This is where we get into hard geography. So remember, by the way, that, that, that I think it's fair to say that God, go back to Exodus 19. I am going to make you a kingdom with a priestly function, and I'm going to make you a set-apart nation, a holy nation. Well, on the one hand, I think the principle of providential placement explains how, how he was going to use them as a kingdom with a priestly capacity. They'd stay there in the land. God would bless their beings. Curse of disobedience. The whole world would hear about it, and, and, and thus they would be used of God to mediate the truth concerning himself to the world. All right, now. On the other hand, he's going to be a holy nation. I'll be very quick here, but watch this, because I'll give you a little geography. The land of Israel, though very small, is, as it says here, marked by very distinct geographical regions. I give them to you here. I get a little. So here are the coastal plains. This is what they look like. Uh, this is the view from Gath. The, the coastal plains are just what you would expect. This is the Valley of Jezreel. Here is the, uh, Mount, uh, uh, the Hill of Moriah over there. Here's the Hill of Gilboa. But uh, so you have the coastal plains. Just inside the coastal plains, and we're not going to talk about this, is a low, a region of low hills called the Shvelah, the, uh, which means the, the, the lowlands. Beyond that, and here, well, here are the chalk passes in the lowlands. This is really a fascinating and terribly important region, but I'm not going to spend any time with it but, uh, for what we're doing now. And then you have the central hill country, like a spine. Now, these central hill countries, especially south of the Jezreel Valley, very steep hills. Well, I'll show them to you. Very steep hills, narrow V-shaped valleys, hard to travel. See, these hills, here you can see it here. Well, one more. These hills, they're limestone. And limestone is a stratified rock. And as it was thrust up after the wilderness, it produces these natural stair steps, this sawtoothed jagged edge which makes travel impossible. You've got to travel on the ridges. Uh, Judea is one of the most closed areas in all the world. And uh, so you have the central hill country, then you have the Jordan Rift. That's what I talked to you about before, the lowest spot on earth. That's not the rift, that's a, a Nahal Kedron. But here we are down by the Dead Sea, that's Masada staring back at you. Uh, Dead Sea, which is disappearing in the south here, as you know. Uh, this is the Judean wilderness. Uh, as you go north, it gets a little greener, and then you have the Transjordanian Plateau. So, here's the point. <laughs> you know, I often tell people that living in Jerusalem, living in the hill country, was kind of like living on the median of the, uh, of the I-5. Because you got this traffic. I didn't talk much about this traffic on the east, but that's King's Highway. It was important. It becomes less and less important. But here in the middle of the land, as a matter of fact, I think I give it to you here, here in the middle, uh, in, the, in the hill country, uh, nobody wants to go there. If you go there, you just got to come back down. 
And so Jerusalem is nestled, of course, right here in the, in the, in the hill country. And it's stunning. As a matter of fact, everybody who studies Israel says that one of the most amazing dynamics of Israel is that, is that is, it is at once so public and so private. What they mean by that is you've got all the nations of the world making their way through that little land. And yet, on the other hand, the, the Israelites could live in the hill country and have remarkable seclusion and be left to themselves and be, if you don't mind, a holy nation. So the geography itself plays into the God's promise to make them, on the one hand, a kingdom with a priestly function. So now you've got all these caravans hearing the stories and carrying the ends of the earth. And by the same token, a holy nation set apart. Now, there were many ways in which they were set apart, but one of the most important was geographical. All right, now, I put you to sleep. But, is that making sense to you at all? Uh, somebody fell. Uh, now, let me pick up on one other thing. I think everything's okay over there. Yeah. Uh, and this is just Bookman. But... And I don't know if I can explain this real well with the maps that I've got up here, but, well, I can, I can. Right here on this map, I know it's awful small, but right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee is Capernaum. And I, I just begun to, I don't know, this came to me sometime. It's going to make sense to me. You decide. But, you know, it's interesting that Jesus is reared in Nazareth. Nazareth sits on a ridge just north of this valley, just north of the Jezreel Valley. It's, it's, in a, it's, it's, it's very hard to get to. When you get to, you just got to come back down. It's on this high ridge. It was, a, I think, an appropriate, and God designed it to be the place where Jesus lived for 30 years and grew up and, and became a stonemason. Can you handle that? I think Jesus was a stonemason. But uh, the Bible says that Joseph was a tecton, and tecton means, it's always translated carpenter, but it's not a good translation. It means builder. And when you go to Jerusalem, when you go to Israel, you realize you don't build with wood there. There's no wood to do, build with. But uh, you build with stone. But anyway, Jesus grew up in, in Nazareth and lived his life out there, and it was a small village. Everybody knew him. But just after he, the, the first miracle in John chapter 2 in Cana, John 2 and verse 12 and Matthew 4 and verse 13, he took his family and he moved to Capernaum. Now, everybody will acknowledge that the primary reason that he moved to Capernaum was because he was about to commence a very, very demanding itinerant ministry uh, by which he would just saturate the land of Galilee with his message and his miracles to prove his claims concerning himself. But, and, and Nazareth was the most inappropriate place where Capernaum, all roads led to Capernaum. So it was handy. So he moves his family to Capernaum, all right? I think there's another reason. Capernaum was the receipt of customs. It was in Capernaum that a man named Levi was sitting at the seat of customs. Remember this? Now, what that means is this, that no matter which direction you're coming, if you're coming from the north, as you cross the border, you're coming down in Philip's territory, you cross the border north of the sea, and you, uh, you enter into Herod Antipas's territory, you're going to be, all the roads are going to very carefully take you to Capernaum, because in Capernaum is where you're going to pay your taxes. The tolls, the local tolls. You're going to pass through Herod Antipas territory, you've got to pay them. If you're coming up from the south, you're going to be channeled to Capernaum. Now, there were a couple other places, but the major tolling spot was Capernaum. Does that make sense to you? It's fascinating. You know, the second most 
the, the city which next to Jerusalem is mentioned more often than any other in the New Testament is Capernaum. It is stunning how many of Jesus' miracles are recorded as having happened in Capernaum. Can you tell me, Matthew chapter 11, what are the three cities in which Jesus did most of his mighty works? You remember? What is it? Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Now, here's a curious thing. How many, the only time, Jesus, what Matthew says is, Jesus called down a curse on the three cities in which he did most of his mighty works, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. The curious thing is that, uh, that being true, nonetheless, how many miracles are actually recorded as having happened in Chorazin? None. The only time Chorazin is ever mentioned is when God, Jesus calls the curse down because he did so many miracles there. How many miracles are actually recorded as having happened in Bethsaida? That's a little tougher. Most will say one, but really it's Mark 8, and it says specifically it was outside of Bethsaida. And yet there are literally dozens, more than, more than 15, I think about 15 or 16 miracles, which specifically... Peter's mother-in-law, the man let through the roof, the man in the uh, synagogue with the withered hand, and so on. Again and again, the story is told of something that happened in Capernaum. Now, might God not have a purpose for that? See, I think this is the point. I really do. And I, I'm going back to something I've said to you before here real quickly. But the fact is that uh, our faith is grounded in history. And the claim that Jesus came alive from the dead is not easily believed. And it's got to be put on, I mean, his whole ministry would, be, would, be, would seem absolutely fabulous in the sense of fable-like to anybody. I think it's important. This is the way I see it. Here come all these caravans. You're part of a caravan. You're making your way down uh, from, you know, from somewhere to the east and through Damascus, and you make your way down, and you come to Capernaum, and don't you know the wagon master's got to go in and pay his tolls? So it's going to take a couple hours, so you're just sitting somewhere in a square or just find yourself someplace where you can refresh it. You're just sitting there, and all of a sudden, a guy comes running around the corner. His family's chasing him. He's jumping up and down. He's waving these pair of crutches. He takes them. He breaks them over his legs, throws them off. I can walk. I can walk. He goes running off, and you say, what in the world is that all about? And there's somebody from Capernaum, and he says, I'm telling you, there's a guy here. He moved here with his family. His name is Jesus. He lived his whole life in Nazareth. You get to him, he heals you. No, I'm telling you, you just saw that guy. I knew that guy all my life, and he was lame all his life. There he goes. Maybe a few minutes later, here comes a family, and they're throwing their kid up in the air, and he's so excited. I can see, I can see, you know, and he's running around. What in the world? Now, you join the caravan. You set off. Maybe you go off to Alexandria, and you are living in Alexandria, and 30 years later, somebody shows up, and he's got this book tucked up under his arm. It's called Matthew. He unrolls it, and he starts to read these stories, and everybody says, come on. And here's a guy who says, I'm telling you, I sat under a tree in Capernaum, and they, those people swore. You see what I'm saying? I think Jesus moved to Capernaum because it was so central to this, I mean, it was so pivotal to this, this international traffic, and international traffic is going to be constantly forced through there. And, and so I think very possibly God very deliberately kind of salt and peppered the Mediterranean world with eyewitnesses to Jesus' miracles who were there before the book of Matthew got there. Does that make sense to you? I, this is really a very deliberate, here's what I'm saying, the geography 
is really deliberate. Does that make any sense to you? All right, now, what questions might you have? It's about, what do we got here? We got 10 minutes. We don't have to use them all. But I'll tell you this generically. Uh, listen, I tell people that, you know, anybody who takes people to Israel probably thinks he does it better than anybody else, and I'm probably no exception, so forgive me for this. But, uh, and I, there, are, there are others, many others who do a great job. But, but I do think I would just encourage you, number one, it's important to see the whole land. What's important, as a matter of fact, guy, the guy who kind of taught us all how to teach Israel is a guy named Jim Monson, taught at a place called Institute of Whole Land Studies for many, many years, and wrote a number of books, hugely important, and, and all the guys at IBEX studied under Jim Monson, and they learned everything they know from Jim Monson and so on, so I can't say enough for him. But he, his final book, where he kind of encapsulated everything about what you really need to know about Israel, you know what the title of it is? The man's not a great poet. Routes and Regions. That's what you need to know. You understand the routes and the regions, and you'll begin to see how that land actually plays into the drama of the Bible, the narrative of the, drama, uh, of, of the, of the, of the, the Bible. So number one, see the whole land. Uh, I would encourage you, uh, uh, do what you can. Listen, there are regions of the land that they're perfectly safe, but they're hard to access because there are tight restrictions on Jewish guides, Jewish drivers, and so on. And I'm talking about what's called the West Bank. Some of the most delightful, I was telling uh, Simon and Jessica, just the last two or three years, a fella taught me how to do this, and so now one day, oh, it's a killer day. We start at 7 in the morning. We pack a lunch, eat it on the bus. We go hard. But we go up. Uh, we see Shiloh. Shiloh is where the tabernacle sat, and you can stand at the place. You can stand where Hannah stood when she prayed. I mean, there's just no question about it. Uh, it's a perfectly framed, just the size of the tabernacle, and it's clearly been leveled and so on. So we go to Shiloh, uh, and then we go to Et El, which is I, and we, we celebrate. It's just amazing to stand on that tell and to read that story with all of its topographical detail and see how it fits so perfectly. Oh, I could tell you stories. And uh, we go to Bethel. We go to Sychar. The well is still there. I was telling uh, Simon and Jessica that my friend's name is Joel Kramer. And now I've, he's taught me how to do this, and I do the same thing. But, but he'll, he'll, we'll stand, it's the same well. That well is 3,800 years old. The earth is 6,000 years old. It's more than, you know, half. I've been here for longer than half of earth's history. And uh, it is the well. Uh, you'd have to walk me through, but I mean, a big church that marks all the way back to the third century, and then every, it's, it's clearly the well. And he will read the passage of John chapter 4, where Jesus encounters that woman at the well and offers her water to drink, and, and that she'll never thirst, and she says, how can you draw? And then he'll take this, this he'll, he'll pull a bucket up from the well, and he'll take a little cup and dip it, and this is about it, I think. What do you think, honey? Uh, he'll say, he'll be reading the passage, and he'll say, and she said, how can you draw? You have nothing with which to draw, and the well is deep. He's got a little cup of water. 
And you go like this. Splash. And everybody goes, oh. I mean, it's just really stunning. It is deep. It's, you know. And uh, so I, I say, I just, we go to Samaria, we go up on Gerizim and so on. Uh, if you can find a way to get to those places where nobody goes to Etel, nobody goes to I, nobody, but Joel. Now, he's taught me how to do it. I got a bus driver who remembers how to do it, so we go. But, but uh, Joel said when we went up there the first time, everybody, you'll, you'll just be, you'll, everybody will be amazed because no tourist bus come in these little villages. Matter of fact, the first time we got our big bus down and there was a, there was a turnaround, you know, a, a traffic circle. And we couldn't get it. I was going from door to door, knocking on doors. Could you move your car? We just need to get around. <laughs> They're trying to, in this very Arab village and so on. They were all very sweet. But uh, so, I, you know, get to those places that, uh, that, that are, I don't know, important to the Bible but hard to reach. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we still, we still go. Now, the seminary goes every year in December. And uh, those trips are pretty full. But my wife and I go, uh, well, next year we've got five trips besides the seminary trip. And it's always, I'm not trying to build trips here, but, uh, we, but it's always just a church or a group that says, let's put a trip together. And so we, uh, we do it. I, it. We do it very mom and pop-ish. I, I, we, I don't use an agency. I just, I don't use a guide. I have a, a driver whom I dearly love. His name is Nabil Court. God led us to him. He is both a bus driver and a licensed guide. So he drives our bus, and he covers us as a guide. We, but he lets me do all the teaching. And uh, though he's a tremendous resource, any questions I got, he knows everything. But, uh, but not only is a guide and a, uh, a bus driver, but he's a wonderful, wonderful Christian who is planting a church in Jerusalem. And uh, and has got a really nice ministry over there. So, uh, Nabil Quartz his name. So, in other words, we 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 don't have any color brochures or anything. You know, we just put a group together and and off we go. So, anything else about Israel itself? Uh, I suppose the elephant in the room is the security issue. Uh, I'm telling you, folks, Israel knows security. And, and day by day when we're there, listen, we have been there how many times? Probably 30 times in the last seven, eight years. We've never had the first hint of trouble. Now, I'll say this to you. Maybe this will be totally off-putting. As we arrived in Jerusalem on our last trip on a Friday night, well, we had actually seen it on the news. You remember when those uh, fellas, uh, they had sneaked a uh, weapon up onto the Al-Aqsa Mosque? And they went up there and armed themselves and came out and shot three Israeli police. Uh, remember that? It was just several weeks ago. Uh, that happened the morning before we got there. When we got there, the city was pretty well. Uh, they were taking remarkable security measures. It never slowed us down. We saw everything we wanted to see and so on. But, and, and, and the point is that they are so very good at security. So I just, I, I never twist anybody's arm, but I, I just have every, there's no reason to be, be concerned in that regard. It really is not. There are a lot of dynamics to it, but 
So what else can I tell you about Israel? Israel is, I, I'm not a great expert on, uh, on the politics and so on. Charlie Dyer is the world's greatest expert on that. He has a book called The Land of the, he has a program called The Land of the Book. And if you're at all interested in Israel, you ought to get his podcast and listen to it week by week. It's fabulous. I never miss it. Uh, most of what I know, I know because I learned from Charlie, if you want to know the truth. But, but uh, uh, it's a fascinating place. It's a fascinating place. But I'm going to say it one more time. This is why I think you ought to try and get to go, get yourself to Israel. Because it will be a huge advantage to you in understanding the scriptures. When you read the Bible, it's history, you generate a mental picture. I hate to be the guy to tell you, your picture's wrong, okay? You're coming out of your culture. We raised our kids on the Bible in pictures for little eyes. I don't know why we bought it, and it worked for us. Ken Taylor, I don't know if you ever saw that. But I think we went through two or three of them. But I just remember that the picture that represented Jesus at the temptation, he was sitting on a rock in a forest. I mean, there were, there were banana plants, and, you know, he was in the wilderness in this forest. Well, yeah, the, the wilderness is a moonscape. There's nothing like it on the earth. You know, there's Jeshimon, this western shore of the, sea of, uh, the Dead Sea. So I, you're just so advantaged to be... Now listen, there's a lot more than geography, and we spend a lot of time with culture and uh, the history and so on. All of that you can learn very much on your own. So you don't have to go to Israel, but you, you, you're going to be advantaged to do it. All right, I hope that's some help. I don't think we had any script, so... Anything else? All right, Joe. <laughs> Whether got it coming or not. <laughs>